going to be in John 12 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and turn to the bottles there. Our little town is known as a spot for destination weddings. And people come out here from all over the place and they pay big bucks to get married in our collective backyard. The price tag is expensive and can range uh, anywhere from shocking to extravagant. Uh, not too long ago, there was a wedding uh, where the father of the bride, I'm pretty sure he was the former owner of the New Orleans Saints, if I'm not wrong. He flew the entire wedding party out here on private aircraft. Um, I was also made aware that they bought large rugs uh, just for the sake of the wedding and then left them for rubbish when it was over. Now, thankfully, people picked them up and have made use of them, uh, but that just sort of blew my mind. Um, I mean, you know, it's just incredibly sort of wasteful, right, it seems like. Um, but thankfully, they, they've been made use of. Uh, but see, that's part of what makes something extravagant, right? It seems excessive and, and maybe even wasteful from a particular point of view. And typically from uh, someone not on the giving or receiving end of the extravagance. Someone on the outside looking in. Now, there used to be a, a TV show, some of y'all remember this, it was called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. <laughs> And uh, there was a British journalist named Robin Leach, and he always it was Robin Leach. He had this particular accent uh, that I'm probably not doing correctly. Uh, but he would meet with all these extremely wealthy people and then tour their homes and, and their possessions and, and sort of let them display their wealth and talk about it all. Uh, according to Mr. Leach himself, to even be considered for the show, a person had to be worth at least $50 million. And that's back in the 80s. So today that would be worth well over twice that amount, so like over $100 million. Uh, th throughout the show, Leach would update people about the cost of different things like clothing or a yacht or different whatever, uh, private helicopters, all the different things that they had. Um, or maybe the, you know, the clothes that they would wear when taking their private helicopter to their yacht, that kind of stuff. Um, but as he ended each show, he would thank people for tuning in, and then he would hold up a glass for a toast while saying his catchphrase. Anybody remember his catchphrase? Nobody? It's all right. Champagne wishes and caviar dreams. That's what he would always say. Uh, now, I have never had a champagne wish or caviar dream, so I don't know what that's like. I'm clearly not rich or famous. Uh, although I do know of a few preachers who would probably be on that show if it was still on. Uh, we all know the ones with their 18-room houses and private jets, right? Something about this, a servant of God being worth $750 million just seems off to me. Uh, we might even wonder why that pastor doesn't give away all that money to the poor and just live frugally, right? After all, isn't that exactly what Jesus told the rich man? In Matthew 19, the young man uh, went away sorrowful as a result. He had great possessions, that's what we're told. And Jesus told his disciples that it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
And yet, oddly enough, this same question shows up in our passage this morning. But it doesn't come from who we might think. And it doesn't play out the way we might think. So follow along with me as we read in John 12, beginning in verse 1. Let's see what happens. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay. Now, in this short passage, we encounter a bunch of different characters interacting with Jesus at a meal. And so as we go through the text, we're going to see how each one is described. Uh, and then we'll see where it kind of all leads. So here we go. This meal took place a week before Passover. Uh, one week before Jesus would be arrested, falsely accused, and tried, uh, then tortured and executed six days before all that sort of kicks off. And we're told that it took place in Bethany, which was just about an hour's walk from Jerusalem proper uh, and the temple, where it would have all sort of unfolded. It's actually well within the city limits now. The city expanse has grown and engulfed it. But we also see that this is where Lazarus lived, where Jesus had raised him from the dead. Jesus came to town and they had invited him to a meal along with the disciples. And here we see the first character in this part of the story. And her name is Martha. And she, she only gets one word describing what she is doing. Martha served. That's it. That's all we get. Although with just that one word, quite an image emerges. In terms of the meal, we can picture her cooking, bringing in the food. We can imagine her refilling glasses with wine and bringing out more bread. Maybe cleaning up a spill, just whatever was needed. Just generally being busy about making sure everyone was taken care of. And this seems to have been kind of who Martha was as a person. In one of the only other passages where she is mentioned in Luke 10, uh, we find her distracted with much serving. That's the language that she used. And in that story, she went to Jesus and complained about her sister Mary not helping. 
Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and not helping her serve. And in response, Jesus actually told her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus wasn't upset that Martha was serving. He looked beyond the fact that she was serving to the motivations behind her service. And he saw anxiety and turmoil. Then he addressed it and pointed her to the goodness of being at his feet. Like Mary. When we see her serving in this morning's passage, Jesus didn't say anything to her. He didn't remind her, oh, don't continue being anxious. Or, and he didn't say anything like that. He didn't ask why she was still troubled or in turmoil. Uh, it's entirely possible that nothing has changed for Martha, Martha and that she's still exactly the same person as in the other story. But honestly, I don't believe that. It seems to me like Martha is someone who encountered Jesus as Lord and that it changed her. After all, in John 11, when Lazarus died, she approached Jesus as he entered town and said that if he had been there, Lazarus would not have died. She then added that she knew whatever Jesus asked from God, he would be given. So it's clear from these statements that she had faith in Jesus. Not that she fully understood him, maybe, but that she trusted in him. And that's something we can definitely take away from this. But when we circle back around to the meal at Bethany, it seems that her service was now coming from a different place. She had a different motivation. Being in the presence of Jesus had changed her. She was still serving, but now she was serving out of a sense of peace and calmness. Not overly worried about things beyond her control. Is this how we serve? Do we invest and give of our time and talents and finances and all of that out of a sense of peace and calmness? Trusting in Jesus and the direction that he is taking us? Or are we still full of anxiety and turmoil? Still trying to control things beyond our ability to control? Maybe it sort of comes and goes like the tide. Sometimes we're fine and then other times we're not. The question embedded in the phrase Martha served is have we taken stock of where we are at in this moment? Have we examined our motives? In this moment, are we trusting in Jesus or ourselves? The rest of verse 2 describes what Lazarus was doing. He gets more than one word, but not much. We read that he was reclining with Jesus at table. And as we've seen through this series, this would have been the same sort of low, U-shaped table uh, with pillows around the sides and everyone sort of leaning on their sides and, and leaning in and eating. What makes Lazarus' presence interesting here is that he had been dead shortly before all this took place. For like four days. So not just like they, he died and they brought him back immediately. Like four days, he's in the grave. In John 11, we see that entire story unfold leading up to this, uh, with Jesus hearing of the sickness and then showing up 
after he had died, only to raise him from the dead in front of a good number of people. This is actually the event that sort of finalized the religious leaders' resolve to put Jesus to death before he gained such a following that the Romans would get involved and take away the religious leaders' wealth and power. That's what they were concerned about the whole time. And they definitely didn't want that to happen. So they hatched this plot that whenever he showed up for Passover, they would arrest him. And for a short time, Jesus uh, knew about the plot. He stayed away. He went out uh, into a place called Ephraim, which was the wilderness outside of town, sort of out of the bushes, really, sort of hiding. But a week before Passover, as Jesus was preparing to go up to Jerusalem for the final time, and he knew what was coming. He stopped in Bethany and he had a meal with this man whom he had raised from the dead. This man who was experiencing now life beyond life because of Jesus. And the intimacy that they were sharing in that moment. And that brings up more questions for us, of course. Has Jesus given us new life? Is that what we're experiencing on a daily basis? Isn't that what the promise of salvation and the Holy Spirit and the resurrection are all about? Aren't these the results of trusting in Jesus? And isn't that how we come to experience new life? Or are we members of a church because that's how we grew up? Or because that's what we're supposed to do as good citizens? Are we walking around like zombies? sort of nodding our heads to the hymns and the rhythms of worship, but never really sinking our teeth into the meal that Jesus has provided for us. Never really reclining with him at the table that he has set for us. The question embedded in the phrase reclining with him at table is have we taken stock of how we are living our lives in this moment? Have we begun to enjoy the presence of the Lord as we join Him in this intimate setting around His table? In this moment, are we experiencing new life and intimacy with Christ? Okay, so here's where the story veers into extravagance. It's going to sound very familiar at first, especially if you were listening last week. Uh, in verse 3, we get to see what Mary is up to. She took a pound of expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. And she used enough of this ointment that the whole house was filled with the smell. I sort of know what that's like because uh, Bailey typically uses a uh, hand sanitizer in the car and it will fill the whole car with the smell of the hand sanitizer. So it's that sort of thing. But we've seen this sort of thing before with the woman anointing Jesus' feet and the hair, right? We saw that last week. This isn't the first time that someone did this for Jesus. A week ago in the story of the Pharisee and the sinful woman, the same thing happened with the exception being that the woman, uh, the woman cried and her tears wet Jesus' feet and then she dried them with her hair. Now, as it turns out, John wrote something interesting about this in the previous chapter. In John 11:2, when linking Mary, Martha, and Lazarus as siblings who lived in Bethany, 
He pointed out that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, Luke never names the woman. That story is in Luke, that other story. He never names her. Though he does talk about Mary and Martha later in his gospel without connecting the two. It could very well be that John is connecting Mary with those events, but we don't know for sure. Could be that it was a different woman and that this happened more than once. What we do know is that Mary was the one at the feet of Jesus in this instance. Just as she had been in Luke 10, 38-42 that we looked at just a few moments ago when Martha came complaining. It almost seems as if Mary was consistently at the feet of Jesus. Which is clearly not a bad thing, right? I dare say every single one of us can stand to sit at the feet of Jesus more often than we do. But that's not the extravagant part. The extravagant part is the way she used this expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. And we find out from Judas that it was worth 300 denarii. That would have been about a year's wages, maybe a little bit more. How many of us have ever taken an entire year's wage and used it extravagantly all at once? How many of us have done so for the sake of Jesus? Should I stop asking these kinds of questions? Maybe. But they are the questions the text seems to encourage us to ask. Not just are we at the feet of Jesus, but are our possessions at the feet of Jesus? Are they broken open and used for His sake? Mary showed absolutely no hesitation to sacrifice what she had for the sake of Jesus. If we're honest, we probably tend to ask different questions. Questions more like the one Judas asked in verse 5. John pointed out that Judas was going to betray Jesus and that he was a thief who stole from the collective money bag. I want to make it clear that I'm not accusing anyone of either of those things when I talk about this. But isn't it strange that many of us find ourselves alienated from Mary's actions in this passage and unfortunately thinking more along the lines of Judas? That's not just me, right? Am I not the only one? We have to pay attention to Mary because her actions show us what true worship looks like. It's extravagant. Just like the love that produced it is extravagant. All too often the church in our time finds ways to restrain ourselves and hold back from indulging in full-on worship. And I'm not saying we have to bounce around the sanctuary when we worship like the people in the Blues Brothers movie. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I am saying that I truly believe that we hold back. And that we do it for lots of reasons. So here's just a few of mine. The first one is, <coughs> pardon me, what will people think if I give myself over to worship Jesus fully? People see me worshiping like that. What do they think? 
I was at a conference many, many years ago, a, a youth minister's conference, uh, and a band was leading worship, and I, I walked in, and there was, there was hundreds of people there. It was a big thing. It was up in Dallas. Um, and there's all these chairs, and everybody's sort of standing and worshiping and singing along and everything. And, and I, I just remember thinking, I don't want to be up in the group. I want to be at the back so that I can worship. There's a weird thing that happens in my head along these lines. And so I sat at the back thinking I would be sort of incognito, that no one would see me because I'd be behind everybody. And I actually took off my shoes because I felt like that was what I needed to do in that moment, the presence of God. So I took off my shoes with flip-flops, sandals, you know how it is. Took them off, sat down, and just worshipped as they were singing. And as I'm sitting there like that, somebody from the conference that was running it took a picture and they put it on their flyers and all their information, the next thing that went out. Oh, so anyway, <laughs> did not work. But I was worshiping Jesus fully in that moment. And it, it was amazing. And another thing, I, another thing I often think is, what if I'm the only one who does it? What if I'm the only one who gives myself over fully to this worship? Or what if, the third one, what if I let loose and worship God fully and people might not listen to me when I preach? They might think I'm a weirdo and not pay attention to what I'm saying. Right? They see me waving my hands and kind of dancing. I'm not a good dancer, obviously. I can't with my back. But if they see all this and then I get up to, to say stuff, they're going to think, that was that crazy person who was acting all foolish over there, right? And that's one of the things I think. I'm not saying any of y'all think this. I mean, you might. I don't know. When, when, uh, this, one, this one hits me pretty hard, too. When hymns and songs that we sing refer to raising our hands in worship, my upbringing taught me that it's meant to be an internal thing. I'm not actually going to raise my hands. I'm internally raising my hands. It's an internal thing. Uh, I'm praising God on the inside. Everything in my upbringing led... And this is... I was raised Baptist. We're in a Baptist church. That's how I was raised. It's here. It's all inside. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. The fifth one is, uh, Jesus doesn't need me to worship in such ways, that's why there are Pentecostals. I'm just kidding. Just Praise kidding. The Lord. There you go. I'm just kidding about that. Um, but the others, the others that I said, those are legit things that have gone through my mind at some point or other when it came time to worship. And there's other things, too, that keep me. Sometimes, you know, it's a mood thing. I'm not, I'm sad, or I'm super tired, or all the things that come along with being a dad of four and all the stuff, right? And we all have things that keep us from being in the moment ready to worship God fully. We have to dismiss such things when they show up in our heads and hearts. The reason is that God did not hold back His only begotten Son from us. So how can we possibly hold back ourselves from Him? Let me say it another way. If love led to the willing sacrifice of the Son of God for our sake, 
How can love not then lead to the willing sacrifice of ourselves and everything we have for his sake? These are the questions embedded in Mary taking a pound of expensive ointment and anointing Jesus' feet with it. We have to ask ourselves, is this how we are living our lives in this moment? Are we offering ourselves and everything we have as an extravagant gift to God? And this brings us to Judas, the betrayer, the thief, the guy none of us would ever want to be associated with by any stretch of the imagination. And he's here in this story for a reason. And part of that reason is that he was there and said these things, obviously, right? It happened, we know that. But there's more to his role here. Because he asked the question that the rest of the disciples were probably wondering quietly to themselves. We know from what John wrote that Judas asked it with ill intentions, trying to benefit himself. But the reality is that the other 11, they probably wondered this same thing, but from a different motivation, from a good place in their minds and hearts. Like, yeah, why aren't we doing that? It's a good question. Jesus made use of this moment to teach them and to clarify his purpose moving forward. He wanted them to understand that what was about to happen over the next several days would not take him by surprise. And he fully expected it. They wouldn't understand that till later, after he had died and risen again. But when they remembered the events of this meal, they would remember what he said and why. So when Judas asked this question and Jesus answered it, it wasn't just answering Judas. He was answering all of them. And in a sense, I think he's answering us as well. We exist in a time when we don't have Jesus physically with us. We do have the poor, though, just as he said. And given what he said, uh, given that he said, what we do to them, we do to him, that whole least of these thing, maybe we need to consider the connection with our extravagant acts of worship and the way we interact with the needy in our community. Maybe we need to ask ourselves a lot more questions about all of this and do a good bit of praying and to be open to whatever the Holy Spirit moves us to do about it. And then look for opportunities instead of waiting for them to drop in our laps. Maybe meeting Jesus at the table he has provided is meant to move us to make his table available to everyone. Maybe Martha's service and Lazarus' new life of intimacy and Mary's extravagant act of worship are meant to reveal to us how we should interact with Jesus at the table and then beyond. And as for Judas, he seems like a warning most of the time, doesn't he? 
Maybe anytime we find ourselves asking his question in our own situations, in the way he's doing it, anytime we think things could be done in a way that sort of benefits us, or our timetable, or our possessions, or finances, or whatever. Before we end this story, we need to look at two more groups real quick. The first is the large crowd that showed up. According to John, they showed up not only to see Jesus, which kind of was common, but they wanted to see Lazarus as well. I'm guessing we would do the same. If someone came to our little town and raised someone from the dead, pretty sure the whole community would want to see if it were true. Right? They were down at the French grocery, we would all go down to the French grocery and find out. We'd all want to see the person who was dead and had been raised to life. It's natural to be curious. And in a case like this, maybe even to be skeptical, right? In this instance, it seems like a good thing to be a part of the crowd. But then we also have the chief priests, <clears throat> the religious leaders, the folks who should have been at the front of the line when it came to serving and experiencing new life and worshiping Jesus in extravagant ways. They should have been leading the way for that. And instead, they were out to kill Jesus, to put an end to his ministry. And now we discover that they wanted to kill Lazarus as well because people were following Jesus as a result of him being alive. And the absurdity of that always puzzles me. <clears throat> like, what was it like in the meeting where they made those plans, right? They got the news about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead from eyewitnesses, mind you, people who saw it happen, went and told them, and their response was, well, guess we ought to kill them both then. Make sure that Lazarus is extra dead this time never made any sense to me. If death is the most powerful thing you can inflict on someone, and they've already been dead and come back from that, how's that supposed to work? It's also ridiculous because they clearly recognized the power of Jesus, but they rejected it. They admitted he was performing signs and wonders, but they wanted nothing to do with it. That's a danger that faces us as well if we see the direction that Jesus is headed and then we refuse to follow. As Jesus warned in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Interesting that he said that in a parable that included a man named Lazarus. Ultimately, the religious leaders were more concerned with the power of Rome than they were with the power of God. <clears throat> man, is that not true of our country today? This should be a warning to us about how we engage in our world. Whatever governments or kingdoms may exist, however powerful they may be, 
whatever laws they pass or deadly weapons they may unleash. Our Heavenly Father is not threatened by any of them. His kingdom is not threatened by any of them. And as citizens of His kingdom, we can't afford to lose sight of this. As Jesus promised in Matthew 6.33, if we will pursue His kingdom first and foremost and live accordingly, Everything else will work out. This short story about this meal that Jesus shared with these people is our window into what that looks like. Into what living in the kingdom is all about. As we read about Martha's service and Lazarus' new life and intimacy and Mary's extravagant act of worship, we are meant to be inspired by them to not only approach Jesus at the table he has set for us, but to engage him in these ways. With service and intimacy and extravagant worship. And willingness to invite others to share in the table Jesus has set for us all. When these things come together in our lives, that's when we'll know what it means to be challenged and changed by Jesus. And we will be if we lean in close and we trust in Him with everything that we have. Will you pray with me?